What's going on, you rogues, rebels, and renegades? Welcome to episode 63 of the Rogue Country Podcast, and boy, do we have a doozy for you today. Laidback Country Picker is with us, and this is a phenomenal chat, but first, let's get down to business. Today, we are brought to you by Pick Print Screen Printing. They're a Liverpool-based, family-run hand screen printing company, and I love these guys. They do my t-shirts, they do the Rogue Country t-shirts, they do Josh Bettis' t-shirts. So if you need band merch, workwear, business uniforms, club or sports team wears, or apparel lines, please get in touch with them. They use eco-friendly inks. It's all done by hand, and they're just an incredible company to wear with. I love them, and you should go support them. I literally picked up some brand new Rogue Country merch today from Pick Print Screen Printing and they are phenomenal. The Rogue Country mugs are going to be going out to everyone who bought one. Thank you so much to Brian, to Jason and to everyone else who ordered them. We've got some new t-shirts. Go over to our Rogue Country Bandcamp. You can buy them all there and you can make sure that this podcast and us being able to support independent country music happens. We really do appreciate all the support because every you know penny we raise goes straight back into putting on gigs, printing flyers, and promoting artists. So thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting us. Live music is coming to the shores of the UK, and make sure you do not miss these shows. Up first in March, starting on the 9th of March in Glasgow, John R. Miller and J.P. Harris join forces to tour the shores of the UK. They started from Glasgow on the 9th down to Newcastle on the 10th, Manchester on the 11th, Nottingham on the 12th, and London on the 14th. You do not want to miss these guys. Their albums are phenomenal. In April, on the 1st of April in Newcastle, Mike and the Moon Pies are hitting the UK. And then they're on to London on the 2nd, Nottingham on the 3rd, Manchester on the 4th, and Oxford on the 5th. I am opening the Manchester show. I know Axe Connolly, friend of the podcast and incredible songwriter, is playing the Nottingham and Oxford shows, and you do not want to miss those. We also have some incredible, incredible news that I cannot believe I get to share with you guys. I can't believe we get to actually make it happen. But Luke Hendrickson is coming to our shores. Yes, the Luke Hendrickson. I'm so excited to finally get this tour to happen. It was meant to happen in April 2020. Then it was meant to happen in 2022. But we now have some actual dates. So on the 22nd of April, me and Luke are going to be playing Dark Earth Records in Wallasey at 1pm for Record Store Day. And then on the same day, we're going to be playing The Underground in Bradford with Chris Dover and the Hoodoo Operators. April 23rd, we're in Northwich at the Salty Dog, which is one of my favorite venues in the UK. April 24th, we're in Birkenhead at the Swinging Arm. April 25th, we're in Sheffield at the Dorothy Pax. April 26th, we're at Newark in the Flying Circus. April 28th, they're at the Whip and Kitten in Rossendale. April 30th, we're at the Dukes of Highgate in London. And we've got a couple of more shows in between those to announce, so stay tuned. And thanks so much to everyone who keeps getting to make these tours happen, who's buying tickets, because without you, we're playing to empty rooms on ourselves, which can be fun, but, you know, it's always better to have our friends and family there, and that includes you guys, so thank you so much. But let's get down to today's episode, guys. We have a doozy of a guest, and I can't believe... I got to speak to him. This was a really chance encounter. We had a message through the Rogue Country page from a guy asking if we would like to, you know, book some shows for Laid Back Country Picker. We, of course, said yes, because who fucking would say no to that? So I, you know, hopped on a call with David Laid Back himself, and we started working things out. And we get into it in the podcast because as we were starting to organize the tour for 2024, I got a message from David that someone had reached out to him from a huge... A booking company we don't name names in the episode because that's 
his department, but you know, they took overall booking. So Rogue Country, you're not going to be booking any laid back shows, but we are definitely going to be front and center for when these happen. We get into it in the podcast, but David is such an open and lovely guy that from that Zoom call to agreeing to the podcast, we've just had, you know, great conversations. And this was such an inspiring talk. You know him from, you know, Tyler Childers' mentor. He's played with him at Red Rocks and opened up the uh, Ryman gigs. Johnny Knoxville has recently touted him as their new favorite band. And we get into all of this and so much more. And this was such a lovely conversation with the laid back country picker. So without further ado, this is episode 63 of the Rogue Country Podcast with Mike West and laid back country picker. Thanks so much for making the time today. And I'm glad to do it. Yeah. And obviously I've known about you for a long time, obviously like as a fan of Tyler Childs and his music and stuff, seeing you come through, but I wanted to try and take it back to the beginning, obviously, um, and talk about your influences and when you started first picking up a guitar and stuff. I read that you started playing bass in local bluegrass bands first. Was that the first experience of musicianship and being in a band's back then or did you do something before that? Yeah, well, really, it was just playing with my my dad up into that point because he was mm. a blue musician. But yeah, the really probably branching out to actually be with other people and, and maybe make a dollar was doing that first. Mm. And what was the type of stuff you grew up listening to? Was it bluegrass, like locally, or was it records? Or yeah, it was records. Uh, my dad had a pretty good old bluegrass record collection, and plus they played music almost every weekend, either at our house or someone else's house. Mm. So exposed to a lot of live bluegrass at an early age oh cool and then from the bluegrass bands and stuff um it says on your like epk that it was um your first professional bar gig was when you went on a senior trip what what do you remember what that bar gig was what was it you were playing like oh yeah back to that night sure uh well it really wasn't it was the night of my 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 high school senior trip and all the other students went on that senior trip and I did not opted out to go do my first real gig. And we were, it, we were a rock band at that point and we were playing, we had original songs written, but we knew people didn't want to hear many of them. So we put <laughs> a few in, but we were just playing the standard seventies rock and roll at the time. And it was a place called the question mark club and in West Virginia, which was very questionable. <laughs> and, there were some interesting things went on that evening. I was exposed to a world I'd never really seen before. Yeah. And what was your first band called? Uh, that band was called Cold Ethel <laughs> after nice. the uh, Alice Cooper song. Oh, awesome. And was obviously on the new record, you have a track called Cooper. Was he an influence musically growing up? Because I always, you kind of forget how long Alice Cooper's been around. Yeah. Hey, I wasn't a huge Alice Cooper fan. Uh, I, I really liked a couple of his songs, but it's not like I, I had a, I guess, love it to death. Mm. And I, I dug a lot of that, but I wasn't, that wasn't that big of an influence. It's just after I got older and, and, and I actually saw Alice here about maybe a year and a half, two mm. years ago. And he was just fantastic. Yeah. And he was still, I mean, I, what a production he put. Have you seen him? Yeah. I've seen him a couple of times. Oh my gosh, I was just, and he played this little town here called Pikeville, and it was right when COVID was letting go, and they didn't sell many tickets because they didn't want too many people in the arena, so he's playing to a half-empty room in Pikeville, Kentucky, <laughs> and you would have thought he was playing, the uh, you know, the Carnegie Hall. I mean, yeah. he was still just balls out. It was great. Yeah. 
No, that's amazing. One of the first times I think I saw him was um, when Motley Crue were doing their final quote-unquote tour. Yeah. Um, he was the opening act for them, and he did two dates in the UK kind of on his own, and they were small venues, and there was literally one, which is the other end of the country from me, and it was in like a leisure center, so it was just a gym hall, but the Alice Cooper production of it, and it felt so... Like, that's how I imagine gigs in, like, the 70s were when it wasn't these huge arenas and, like, dedicated clubs. It was you find a venue and you play that venue, and it had, like, a real earnest feel to it on top of Alice Cooper's production. It was insane. He's such a phenomenal entertainer. Oh, he really is, and you're you're right. I bet it was a a different kind of feel back in the day for stuff like that, and I bet it was wonderful. Mm. Yeah, and then growing up, so the records and stuff you listen to who made you want to play guitar because you've got a really cool like swampy sound with the slide and stuff on your latest records and stuff was that something you picked up early on or who were your guitar heroes back in the day no not early on i mean i was uh mom and dad were real traditionalist and even if they were listening to anything besides bluegrass it was johnny cash records so i really liked luther perkins and that kind of mm, playing yeah and you know luther just played so melodically and just kind of followed mm. the vocal line johnny did that's what luther did and you know when you're first learning to play you're not very skilled and and that lends itself to how you play so Mm. i adapted and really started playing like that a lot but then as i got better you know you move into extended solos and you know going off and just playing tons of notes and i go through a period where you want to play as many notes as you can i saw randy rhodes before he died really Oh yeah, that was pretty much a mile. Uh, probably about a month and a half before he died, I saw him, and it was. Huh, it made me wonder why I even play guitar because he was just so yeah. good. But when I get into the slide playing, I really started following a band, the the Georgia Satellites, mm. and you know their guitar player Rick Richards is just a phenomenal player, and he's just a, he his slide playing is really good. And it's it's that you know I hear all these slide players now, and and people like. Uh, um, what's his name? The Allman Brothers guy. Hmm. Uh, Dwayne Truck. is a, a, Yeah, Derek yeah. Trucks. Yeah. And all those guys. And they're just so precise. And Sonny Landreth and their notes are just dead on. And I can't believe how well they play. And I don't play like that at all. Now, <laughs> I'm a Johnny Winter kind of slide player because a lot of my stuff's off off pitch a little, but it, you know, it hopefully feels good. Jimmy Page, the way he plays slide, you know, he's not one of those perfectionists. And he, yeah. and that's, that's how I, and Rick Richards plays that way. And those are my slide heroes, Rick and Johnny mm. and Rick Page. Yeah. No, awesome. And just going back to Randy Rose, because I've never spoke to anyone who got to see him live. That was, that must have been the diary of a madman tour, like 82, 83. Yeah. It was probably early 82. Mm. It was about February. And I think he passed away a little bit or in the early spring. Mm. And, um, you know, at that point, he had Tommy Aldridge and Rudy in the band. And I had fairly good seats. We were probably about 20 rows back. Hmm. And it was just a mind blower, man. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I'd, I'd love the Blizzard album, and I guess I'd heard Diary at that point. But to see him do it live, and I mean, Randy was just so good. And yeah. it, it was a mind blower. Uh, I can't imagine. I've just, Ozzy's just canceled all his UK dates and European dates, and he's retired from touring. And we've held on to our tickets for five years. We bought them in 2018. And we just didn't want to give up on the hope of maybe getting to see him one last time. But I've I've got the tribute album. I've listened to it a fucking million times. I've learned to play Mr. Crowley. And when I was in uni, I did all the tap and solos and shit for Randy. But um, to see him live must have been an experience. 
It, it was. It, it changed how I thought about guitar. And and I just realized that physically, what a gift he had just to be able to physically do what he could yeah. do. And I can't. My body doesn't do those things. But then on top of that, the way he thought and the way he, he thought about his phrasing and the mm-hmm. notes he had, no one had really played like that, at least to my knowledge up to that point. And it, it, for me, I mean, Eddie Van Halen changes the way people play guitar. But then Randy changes it too, yeah. I think. And there's a lot of people in between that came and went. And for me, those two guitar players just had a major impact on how rock and roll was played in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm. No, so like for me, I always think like electric rock guitar, it goes off in like kind of two branches and it's like Iomi and Page. And then I feel like the next two that you kind of branched off was either Randy or Eddie. And it was, I always feel like it's those four that kind of shaped like the next two decades of guitar. Man, that's a really good way to think about it because I hadn't thought about the Iomi Page split, but you're right. And both I love both those guys too. Mm-hmm. And you know, Page with the more blues thing and and Iomi found those dark chords and notes to play. <laughs> you're right. That's a great way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but with kind of your influences, obviously like live I've seen you wear your motorhead shirts and things. So it's combining like motorhead, Stanley Brothers, Jennings, Randy Rhodes. Was it I guess you didn't really think about the sound you were trying to make initially. It was just, that's what came naturally to you with those influences swelling about. Yeah. And when you say it that way, it sounds insane, doesn't it? To think <laughs> about all the different people in there, you know, I, I'm, I'm an old guy. I've been around a long time and I've got to see uh, just, uh, you know, the influence of Waylon and the way he, they play guitar and well, Waylon, that's Waylon playing most of that good stuff. Mm. And there's just a purity to it. And, and um, I mean, that's, that's Waylon's personality when he plays guitar. And it was Randy's personality when yeah. he played. And, and I just so appreciate that. And, and the longer you play, you know, hopefully you kind of take all that stuff and turn it into your way of playing. Because for the longest time, when you're young, you want to play like somebody else, but that starts to slip away at some point and you just become who you are. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Mm. And in terms of like lyrically, was there anyone influenced you? around like how you approach the lyrics and your sensibilities in that way outside of those guys there's a couple of little bands uh well first the it goes back to the georgia satellites a lot because the dan baird you know they wrote a lot about the south and just the kind of the i don't know there's a subculture of, of the way people live in the area where i'm at and i really picked up on a lot of what dan was doing and he was just telling stories about just everyday common people mm. and i think i i tried to do that uh, are you familiar with webb wilder no he was a guy he, he's also from i think mississippi but he mm. kind of made a name for himself as a rockabilly guy around nashville and he's done fairly he had a couple of records that actually got on mtv a little bit and Webb has a great sense of humor. I mean, he's always writing just very irrelevant stuff, but he's he's a great musician and always had a good band. And there's another band here called Southern Culture on the Skids. Mm. Don't know if you're familiar with them. And there too, they're more surf based, but they also just have a great sense of humor and they're all great musicians. And, and you know, I tend to write some things that are a little bit goofy sometimes. But uh, mm. I try to play with people that, that play well. And mm. so it's one thing to be goofy, but if you have good players with you and you're playing good music, that's, that makes it a little more credible, I think. Oh, I think it's it's the same thing if you go back to Alice Cooper, where there's, you know, there's almost a shtick to it or a lightness, but Absolutely. it's done with such a personality and sincerity that it's never seen as a parody of itself. It's never seen as something 
disparaging in any way. It's like people can acknowledge the wit of it, but it's not detracting it, which I think is a really fine line to walk. You're right. It is. And it's funny. I was watching an Alice Cooper interview this morning and he was talking about when uh, Glenn Campbell died. And I didn't realize he and Glenn Campbell were like best friends mm. and they play off together all the time. And Alice talks about Alice Cooper in, you know, third person. Mm. Like it, that's the Alice P- Cooper thing. And it's really interesting to see how he separates that out. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting thing. But going back to kind of your early days and stuff, it said that you performed with like lots of artists, like in an uncredited way. Was that in the studios and stuff? Now, uh, like talking about like the Georgia Satellites and the Kentucky Headhunters and those people, is that who you're talking about? Um, so it says um, in your kind of EPK, it's like you went on to perform and record with many well-known artists, often uncredited, as is the Nashville way. Yeah, well, you can't believe everything you read on a website. <laughs> but I did uh, actually with the Kentucky Headhunters. Are you familiar with those guys? Yeah. So we, uh, I really admired them and I keep going back to those two bands, the satellites and the headhunters, but they had such a big impact on me when they first came out and they got popular because they were people from rural America. They were Southerners. Mm. They still had an accent, but they were playing. I mean, the headhunters worship Led Zeppelin and that's what really they wanted to sound like. And the satellites really worshiped the faces and they kind of wanted to sound like the faces all the time. Mm. Just show me you can play big guitar rock and still have a little bit of a twang in your voice, and there's a place for you. So we decided when we were going to record, I had a band at that time called Night Train, and mm. really just wanted to sound like the satellites. That's what we were doing. But the Kentucky Headhunters, where they record, it's probably about 200 miles from where I live. So we went down to the studio they used to record, and the engineer kind of dug what we were doing and played some of our stuff for the Headhunters. So mm. they they befriended us. And we went back down and actually recorded some with them helping out. Oh, awesome. So I did get to record some with, with some of the guys from the Headhunters. Mm-hmm. And I wound up on a record that one of the Georgia Satellite guys also played on. We were never in the same room at the same time, <laughs> but we were both playing on it. But I, I actually became really close friends with both of those bands. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been out with them on little stints on the road and stuff. Opened up for both of them a whole lot. And those those guys really had a big impact on me. That's so cool. Was there anything specifically you kind of took away from them in terms of when you're in the studio with them or? You know, I don't do well in the studio. Uh, I watch people who can play and it's almost seemed like effortless and mm. they nail everything first take. And I really struggle in the studio. Uh, I don't know. I just never, I always feel like I'm going to mess up. So I hold back when I play there. Mm. And, and I always read that Mick Rouse from Bad Company, it was the same thing. Like he played really safe in the studio, but then live he would go for things. And, mm. and you know, and I think I struggle with it. This last record I put out probably has my best studio playing that I've ever done on it. And it wasn't all first takes. It was quite a bit of work went into mm. it. But, you know, one thing I, you do, you really learn, or at least you should be as professional as possible and, and have your licks together and know what you're going to do ahead of time. Because I watched those guys play. You know, I went down, I, I was there for the recording of Tyler's second record in Nashville. Mm. The, uh, what's, what's the second album? Country Squire. Yeah, Country Squire. I was in the room when they recorded it, and it was mm. a lot of Nashville players. And, oh, my God. I mean, it's one. Here's really how it went down. Maybe uh, uh, Tyler would gather around the players, and they would say, play the song. So Tyler takes an acoustic. He plays the song. All those guys are writing charts as he plays. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in real time. And they say, okay. And they walk into the recording studio and first, second take every time. 
It's just unbelievable how mm-hmm. they could be creative and come up with those parts on the spur of the moment. Yeah. And I watched that and went, uh, you know, I can't do that. I, I'm not at that level and few people are. So I kind of learned my place from going and doing that. <laughs> but it was incredible to watch that. Yeah. No, I think like reading up on, you know, Owen Bradley's session players and the ones who kind of define the Nashville sound back in the day and you hear about the players now of, you know, that caliber. And, you know, as a musician, you fit, you think you can play, you can, you know, write songs, hold your own, but they have just this whole other level of like creativity and perspective. And I don't know if it's because it's not their song necessarily. So they've got an outside view of it, but they can just bring something to it in a way that not many people, even the original artists could not think to do in that terms. No, you're absolutely right. And, and I had this stereotype in my head that Nashville players or just studio players are very sterile and they're going to bring a sterile part in and it's, it's not going to be creative. And what I watched down there, that wasn't the case at all. And the more that made me want to learn more about these studio guys and they're, and I guess that's why they're like first call people, you know, because yeah. not only are they just so adequate on their instrument and they can nail it first time. They also bring a creative element to it. I was watching those guys create those parts that we hear on Tower's album in real time, mm-hmm. and they didn't sit there for a half hour and figure it out. It just came to them, and I don't, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, they're no, next that, level. Yeah. That's just years and years of practice and something else. No, it's it's such a fascinating thing. I really respect, and I'm curious about those guys because it feels like they're musicians in a way that they're like kind of almost absent of ego. Cause it's never about them or having their names necessarily on something. It's about saving the song in the best way possible. And there's so many unsung Nashville musicians who have played on so many phenomenal records that will never get the credit that that song may have achieved, but without them, that song would never have achieved that. Anyway, it's a really weird duality in world that they exist in. It is. Uh, the guy that was playing, I guess he's been on both the Tyler's uh, Nashville records. It was Russ Paul and he played mm-hmm. guitar and played a lot of pedal steel on it. So I recorded Kingsport in that same studio where Tyler recorded and I got Russ Paul to play on my record. Mm-hmm. And man, there wasn't a whole lot for me to do. You know, he was just so good. And, and I wound up playing a few parts and also during the recording of that record, like two weeks before we did it, I was cutting an apple open and I sliced my thumb open. I mean, like a really bad cut and I couldn't play very well at all. That limited what I could do. So I was going to lean more on Russ anyway. But then after you get down there, you go, geez, I, I don't really need to put one on because they were so good. <laughs> but you're right. It's incredible what they do. A lot of them probably do not get credit. And you go back and look at Russ Paul's, you know, who all he's been on tons of people's records in Nashville. And it's not like you hear him and go, oh, that's Russ Paul, because he played for the song yeah. and exactly what it required. And it, they're just so good at that. Mm. No, it's insane. And you know, speaking of Tyler stuff, when did you first meet Tyler? What was like that instance? Well, in my, my daytime life, I'm a social studies teacher at a mm. high school in Louisa, Kentucky. Um, and Tyler was one of my students. He just came in as a, a freshman student in my government class. I'd known his parents. We were about the same age. And we, when you grow up in a small community, you know, everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. But here comes Tyler, and he's always carrying a guitar every day. And <laughs> that, was, that was my introduction to him. And now you're signed onto his, like, Hickman Holler label. You've played a load of gigs with him, like the Ryman and Red Rocks. What was Red Rocks like? Because that venue's so legendary. And I've seen photos and videos of it. It's on my bucket list to visit one day and maybe one day play. 
Well, you really must do that. You know, for me, um, I really loved you too when that when they hid and that whole live at Red Rocks thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we watch that all the time, and it just seemed otherworldly then because it's it's all misty and you know it's cold today. The they did that show, and you just get such a cool vibe from watching watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. So when I get to play there, I, I'm just in awe. One that I'm standing there in the same place of this venue that I've watched all my life. But even if you're there, not even for a show, it's just mm-hmm. one of the most impressive places I've ever been. Those gigantic rocks, and it's just beautiful there. When we did the show, I was playing with Luna, with my wife, who has Luna in the Mountain Jets, and we mm-hmm. opened for power there. And, and I, I've tried to explain it to people, but it was really sort of an out-of-body thing. And I swear, I felt like I was just floating above myself, <laughs> watching myself play the show. Mm-hmm. It, it really didn't feel like I was actually playing. And, and we happen to have a pretty good show and most of the notes were right. And that's just pretty <laughs> incredible. But it's, I can't explain to you what it's like to be there. Yeah. And to play there. That's so cool. And obviously you played the rhyme and stuff with the label being on or with your record being on his label. Was there a discussion with him about kind of, did you pitch, like, did you have the album kind of ready to go and just be like, this is what it is or. No, not at all. <laughs> you know, the, the first record, we just kind of made it up on the spot because we needed an album real quick because we'd invented this character, this image of laid back that people seemed to buy into. So we thought, mm. well, we better have a record real quick. But then when I, I get with Tyler and get on Hickman Holler, he just said, we're going to record you in Nashville on this date. And it was probably eight, nine months down the road. And so he's like, get some stuff together. But it's not like he checked in on me. It's like, what yeah. do you got? Have you got stuff ready? You know, Tyler didn't care. He just mm. wanted me to go to Nashville and record. Mm. So he let me pick my people. He's like, you can have anybody you want. We'll get you whoever. So, you know, I loved watching what Russ Paul had done. So I got him. But then I used the drummer that I always play with from here in Kentucky. And it's mm. named Hayden Miles because I don't know anyone any better, really. Mm. So Hayden played on it. Uh, I got Jesse Wells from Tyler's band to play fiddle on it and mandolin and stuff because, I mean, he's great. Mm. The bass player I got is JT Cure, who is also from this area. And I'd actually played some with JT and other bands. But JT is Chris Stapleton's bass player now. Mm. So we just had all these brilliant musicians. And, and we show up and we kind of did the same thing I'd watch Tyler do. Uh, they said, take an acoustic, show us how it goes. And I would do it. They would chart it. We'd walk in and, and you know, two takes later, the song's finished. And, mm-hmm. and Tyler came by, he actually sings on one of the songs on Kingsport and he hung out a little bit, but he, he wasn't, he wasn't too concerned with what I was yeah. doing. I, I don't <laughs> think he cared. Yeah. No, that's awesome. He did it in a good way. He, yeah. you know, it's whatever you come up with is going to be fine. Yeah. No, that's so cool. And with kind of having that nine months, did you have any songs you had been working on then, or did you kind of create from then until recording time? Yeah, you know, where I, I, I teach school, and really that's pretty consuming. And yeah. when your school year starts, you lose a lot of time to work on music. Plus, we were playing live a lot, so my weekends were mostly tied up with us going off and doing gigs. So you know, little by little, the songs trickle in, and and honestly, I tried not to write with uh, with anything in mind. It's yeah. like I'm just writing, and we'll do it when we get there. But maybe about two or three months out, I'm looking, I'm going, I don't have many songs. I really need to knuckle down and make sure I've got enough. So I probably wrote a couple there just so I would have enough tunes to go in and record. Mm. But, you know, writing is a weird thing, as you know, and sometimes it comes quickly and other times you hit a dry spell and not a lot's going on. Mm. No, awesome. Like this um, 
Go West record I really, really enjoyed. Kind of getting into, you know, just as you use Cooper as an example, what was the writing process behind that? Do you remember much of how that came about? Was it riff first or hook first or... Yeah, in the Nashville thing, was another thing I learned down there in the studio is they really trim the fat out of songs in Nashville. Mm. Like they, I would play my songs for me and the producer, uh, it was a Dave, um, Dave Ferguson, who was just mm. a legendary producer. And he's like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you repeating this twice? Why do you have this little mini bridge here? What's the purpose of it? And mm. they would just slash all that out. So you got a three, three minute song with no wasted space. And it's amazing to watch them do that. And, and I really thought that that's, it's a whole other craft to itself. But I also went, you know, this next record is not going to be that way. <laughs> I, I, I watched a friend of mine play and he was playing live. His name's Sean Whiting, who's just brilliant, by the way. And there were songs that were just like a room for a jam and there was mm. an ex- solo happened. And that really had an impact on me that day. I thought, you know, all songs do not need to be two and a half minute songs with a, you know, yeah. there's room for guitar playing. And I really set out to make this just another a good 70s rock and roll guitar album. Mm-hmm. And records I love is Rocks by Aerosmith, I think is such an important album. Powerage by ACDC. I mean, that that period right there of just rock guitar albums, I think, are, are brilliant. And I kind of wanted to make it a rock and roll guitar record. And if guitar solos lasted a minute and a half, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And going back, you you play with uh, your wife, Luna. And go back, how did you guys meet? We met in high school. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we were in school together, so it would probably been late 70s. Um, I, I was a year ahead of her in school, and we just kind of, we had a class or two together. I knew her family. I knew her sister. And we just kind of hooked up that way, and mm. we liked it. It turns out she was a big Tom Petty fan. Mm. And I was a Tom Petty fan, and that was a, kind of a nice thing. It, it drew us together, and mm-hmm. you know we've been together ever since, really. Oh, awesome! How long have you guys been married? Thirty-eight years. Nice. That's no, awesome. uh, give me a signal. Is that right? Thirty-nine. Forty. <laughs> yeah. Well, thirty-nine. Thirty-nine years. <laughs> That's awesome. And obviously, getting to play live together must just be again. It's one of those things you get to share with each other, and you know, look over and have that kind of relation that just must strengthen it even more. It must be awesome. No, it's the greatest thing. We, uh, you know, we get to travel together and it's, we, we play music together. We do a lot of stuff instinctively now where we don't even have to say it. And on stage, I can read where she's going and what she's doing and, and it, things just flow well. And, you know, that's for me playing with her in, in her band with Luna. Mm. And, uh, and now with uh, the thing we've been doing with Layback, where we played two piece in the last, probably a year, year and a half or something like that. You know, the, the drums was a new instrument for her. And she really only first started playing drums a little bit during COVID because we had nothing else to do. And I had a drum set downstairs and she really adapted to it pretty quick. So we're still kind of feeling each other out on where we can go with the two piece and what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. But it, it is, it's a great joy to play music with her. No, awesome. I'm with, laid back where did the concept come to have this kind of look and persona and sound come from where did that originate from you know it really came from uh, playing music in bars in the 80s and there was people who looked that way mm. and, and you know at first you kind of go you guys are kind of cornball and the, <laughs> why, why are you still dressing that way you know the, the, that decade's over 
But as I got a little older and a little more mature, I really appreciated those guys for what they were doing because they were staying true to themselves. And even though maybe their style of dressing had, had come and gone, that's who they were. Yeah. And they were proud of it. And, and they, they just went out and gave it their all just weekend warriors. And so when I was started thinking about, we'd just taken a photograph of me wearing a goofy cowboy hat with those green glasses on. And when we saw the shot, we thought that's that's an interesting picture, and that looks like somebody we would call the laid back country picker after the Waylon Jennings song. And it just sort of developed from there. And I mean, the the, the laid back photograph is at least ten years old, <laughs> and I've been talking about a character called laid back country picker for a long time. So it's been a long time in yeah. development. But as far as actually having a product out and playing music under that name, I guess I've been doing that for five years now. I think. Cool. And was there a kind of a genesis as to like when you wanted to bring music out you've been having this kind of idea jesty for you know five years and then was there a turning point when did you come up on on the sound and was like that's the sound for that or was it you know you wanted to go out and then you kind of well what would it sound like if we did well when we uh, we put the the image on a shirt and people started buying it because tyler wore the shirt and we were like, oh my gosh, this is a really popular thing right now. So let's let's make a record of it. And you know, being since it's called Laidback Country Picker, which has a whaling uh, connection, yeah, we made it more of a country sounding record. And like, I, I played my guitar, and I wanted to use a Phase ninety on everything, and let's just have Phase through everything. So probably the first year or so. Mm. People play shows live and it's more that outlaw country kind of sound. And there were shows where honestly, I, I turned the phase 90 on at the beginning of the night and I didn't turn it off. I let it run all <laughs> swirl. But as it more developed, you know, I'm, I'm a rock and roller too. And I, I love seventies rock and I just want to be Jimmy Page like we all do. <laughs> and I think it started to show itself more and more as it's way back went on. And now it becomes this thing like, you know, one of my taglines is I'm playing good country music and I'm treating people right. And if you go see me now, there's not a whole lot of country music to it. It's it's more of a 70s rock band feel. But and, and I guess I'm still developing it and going, you know, I don't know where it'll go. And, and that's the beautiful thing about it. I don't have to know where I'm going. No. I, I can play whatever I want. I can make whatever I want. Uh, it, it's I've got a lot of freedom to do what I want to musically. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think. You know, a lot of 70s rock, there is an overlap with that kind of outlaw Waylon Jennings sound. There is like definitely a Venn diagram to be had of those type of guitars, those type of attitude and that type of playing where it is almost not interchangeable, but you could see one fading into the other and back again. It is a spectrum of a sound. Oh, you're right. Um, there is a, a a record that came out probably about late, late 70s. It's just called Waylon Live. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. Is that the Texas one? I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it's I've been listening. I've listened to the Whalen Live record. I think it's like, it's on Spotify. One of the live albums I've heard from him. When they put it out, it was just a single album. And then they re released it and they made it a double album. And they just had a lot of stuff on. But I just had the single album. And I just remember listening to that. And and I can't even describe it. You did a good job uh, trying to explain how. It's uh, it's set up like a rock and roll concert in a way. The way the, like you got a guitar here and then you got a pedal guitar here, and the way they interact with each other and the way the drums and bass have their little section, it's real rock and roll. But mm. it's still outlaw country and it's yeah. way on. But yeah. I, there's a clear similarity there to the, to how Aerosmith operated live with Brad and Joe on left and right side and and just the rhythm section holding it down. 
they were super similar to me. And that's mm. why I don't have a lot of problem uh, playing the way I play or, you know, I, like I play Godzilla by Blue Oyster Cult, but I play with a Wayland beat. <laughs> and it's not like I'm really honestly doing it to be cute. It just works and it yeah. feels pure and natural to me. And, and that's how I play it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the rock crowd is a lot more embracing of country elements than the country crowd is embracing of like rock elements. And I think it works really well. Like you have, you know, Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings, you know, in rock circles, they're still considered legends. You don't have to go very far in a rock bar to find someone who loves those type of guys because there is such an overlap and a respect for those type of artists. Yeah, and a lot of those guys are guys that went against the grain yeah. and they did what they felt and, you know, that their music didn't get altered or watered down by, by Nashville or whoever was doing that. And I think that does stand up and a lot of people do really appreciate that from the rock and roll side as well. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I, I was just, I just thought that I've, I'd have loved to have seen a double headline tour of Waylon Jennings and Motorhead because I really think those two crowds would have got on fucking perfectly. You're you're absolutely and you're right. That, that makes my hair on my arm stand up just to think about that. That would that would have been phenomenal because you got two guys that just said, "This is what I do, yeah, and I'm going to do it until I don't breathe anymore." And that's exactly what both those guys did, and they didn't care if yeah. Wales didn't like it or whatever. They were who they were. Man, what a good tour that would have been. I know. I'm I'm just thinking about it then, and it would never have happened. Or you know, if I could go back in time and change one thing, I would have tried to make that happen. <laughs> Well, if you go back in time, let me know. I, w- I want to get tickets to the show. So obviously being from Kentucky and being involved in the K- Kentucky scene, lately it kind of seems like Childers was the new wave of Kentucky artists. And there's been like so many great artists that have kind of come after him with like Lance Rogers and James Reed and stuff. With your perspective of seeing the Kentucky scene from you know a few decades, what's been your perspective of how it's grown and shifted? You know, I'm trying to go back and think about uh, there really wasn't that much of a cohesive scene in Kentucky before that. You had mm. a lot of artists that came out. You know, the Ricky Skaggs and Larry Quartle came out. Exile came from Kentucky. The Headhunters came from Kentucky. Uh, you know, the Judds. But they're all kind of, well, and Dwight Yoakam. But yeah. it wasn't like they were all sort of in the same boat together. Yeah. But then after Tyler did what he did, you just saw a rash of people who said singer songwriters and I'm going to sing about Appalachia and I'm going to stand there with my guitar and take a stand. And you just saw a groundswell yep. of people. Yeah. And some people honestly just come out sounding exactly like Tyler. And that's just going to happen. Yep. If you look any, uh, it's easy to look at the Seattle scene when it exploded and all of a sudden everyone sounded like that coming yep. out of Seattle. And that's how you got a record deal. And I'm not going to say that a lot of people said, well, I want to sound just like Tyler. But he had a big influence on him, and a lot of them do wind up sounding that way. But then you mentioned somebody like like Lance, who really doesn't. And Lance just he, he's Lance, and that comes through. And there's so many people. There's Cole Chaney, and I don't. I hate starting naming names because we people out. But there's a lot of people who just saw it's okay to sing about this area. I can take my an acoustic and, and go deliver the word, and, and people are paying attention to it right now. Mm. So. I, I'd, I'd never seen anything like that really happen. And to be in the area, you know, you always read about how those scenes developed in other places. And I'm sure there's the Detroit scene or the Muscle Shoals scene yeah. or the LP metal scene. And I got to watch, watch it happen right here. And, you know, obviously you talked about Lance and Cole Chaney and stuff, you know, I'm happy to name some more names. If you've 
if there's anyone on your mind that kind of has been coming out new that people should check out, this is the place to kind of do it. You know, there, uh, gosh, I'm so forgetful. <laughs> you can help me. I mean, there's a kid here named Logan Halstead who is yeah. just great. Uh, man, it, it blows my mind. You know, these people, that's so cool. <laughs> um, in the hard rock genre, don't look up Sean Whiting. If you're not familiar with mm. him, he, he's just a super, super talented player. There's a band here, which is, you know, they kind of predate tower called Sunday best. Are you familiar mm. with them? At all? Mm-hmm. You know, they got kind of big on their own. The, the, the primaries, well, there's two of them. They're a two piece band. It's Christopher Bentley and Nick Jamerson. And look them up and they, they, they've been doing stuff and writing about Appalachian and singing about it for quite a while too. Mm. Uh, new people. Uh, well, one of my favorite bands is Wayne Graham. Are, mm. are you with them at all? Yeah. So, you know, Wayne Graham is what I recorded my record in their studio and Kenny and Hayden, the two primaries and Wayne Graham are, are, have been on all my records. Oh, awesome. So they're great. You know, I kind of like Luna and the mountain jets. If you want to check them out they're yeah. they're pretty you know. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it, you know what? What's some bad? Throw some people at me because I'm probably leaving off people I know. And James Reed, Katie Meadows. I don't know James Reed. I, I'm not familiar with him at all. Yeah, he's a good one. Um, I, he brought out a record. I think it was last year or the year before. We had him on here, and it was interesting. We talked about the Kentucky scene with him, and there was a lot of people. He said that when Tyler came out, a lot of people kind of did the opposite. There was a groundswell of people who picked up guitars because of it, but then there was a lot of people who put guitars down because of it because they didn't think they could match kind of what he came out the gate doing. And we kind of, you know, if you're going to have that attitude, you should have given up guitar when and songwriting when John Prine came out or Chris oh, Gustafson right. or something. It's like, it, right. there's, there's like I know there's always going to be someone better than me. You know, it's like, you know, I know Randy Rhodes existed. I know John Five exists for guitar playing and stuff. I know towns and prime exists for songwriters but it's not about doing it the best it's doing it the most honest you know and you're it took me a long time to learn that because being a guitar player like i said when when i saw randy play that well, yeah. what's the why am i doing it but you do figure it out that it's not a contest and yeah. it's about expressing yourself and you're right john prime w- would have closed the door on all of us yeah. <laughs> But, you know, everyone's still got something to say in our own way, and that's fine. And and I love what you said. You just be true to yourself and yeah. and learn how to be the best you you can be, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, and I think even, you know, because I see on the internet where people are talking about how, you know, there's so many clones pop up of, of, like, an artist once an artist kind of breaks. But I remember, you know, I'm from England, and the open mic scene completely changed after Ed Sheeran came on the scene. And, you know, everybody and their dog was bringing a loop pedal to open mics. And it's just one of those things where it's people see someone do something well and they're like, they want to experiment with it. They want to try and find their own voice. So they may not get there, but it's worth a fucking punt. It is. And it's, and it's people who normally would never have gotten to do that. All of a sudden they were inspired to do so and they tried. And that's, you know, that's if they got some joy out of it, then yeah. everybody wins on that. Yeah, no, exactly. And obviously you're actively gigging outside of your day job and stuff are you playing mostly around kentucky do you go further afield because like america's so big i can't imagine how far you have to drive to kind of get out of states and into new areas it really is big and (laughs) and, you know you can drive for for four or five days and you still got a ways to go Uh, originally we were playing probably within uh, playing a lot within a 150 mile radius but, you know, layback's kind of blown up just a little bit here lately, and that circle's starting to get a little yeah. bit big. 
you know, we were going to Indianapolis, which I know means nothing to you, but so like now it's a four or five hour drive to get some of these gigs and more people are starting to show up at the gigs too. And mm-hmm. phenomena I've seen in the last couple of weeks are people come up at our show and say, I drove five hours to see you. And you know, and that's never happened before, but we got that's people awesome. traveling great distances now to come and see what we do. That's kind of a mind blower for me. It's like, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. Did that? But, you know, going back in time, I did that all the time. I would drive four and five hours to go see people that I was into. And they were underground people, and you were seeing them in yeah. a little club. And your chance of getting to go talk to them after the show was was pretty much 99%. Mm-hmm. And there's something really cool about that. And that seems to be happening right now. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And obviously, you kind of had a big jump before you even put music out of just Tyler wearing a laid-back shit. Most recently, you've had Johnny Knoxville say you're his new favorite band. How much did that kind of move the needle or jump things up in the last well, couple? Of- you know, the Johnny Knoxville thing had a big impact, um, and it couldn't have happened really at a better time because the album maybe was just getting ready to come out, and I'd never put anything on, up digitally before. Uh, I'd refuse to use Spotify or iTunes or anything, but I put it all out there with this one. And the the reach uh, just internationally w- was mm-hmm. quite surprising. Um, and within the last week, a guy named DJ Ringo on Virgin Radio in Italy mm. has has done the same thing that um, Johnny Knoxville did. Like he said, this guy's cool, and he shared one of our little Instagram videos. And now my traffic from Italy is just unbelievable. I have so many people who like me now that I cannot pronounce their name. It's just <laughs> awesome. But I think we're, you know, we had talked earlier because you and I met because we have a common, well, I don't even think he's a common friend. You didn't know Phil, did you? No, he reached out just because of Rogue Country and things. And I'm so glad he did because he messaged me and was like, do you know Laid Back Country? And I was like, a fucking course. Like, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I got, I got to tell you a story about Phil before we even go any farther. We, uh, the Georgia satellites were going to tour Europe and they were mm. going to come play England some dates. And so I wanted to go open for them because I know these guys and they're like, well, we can't help you, but you can contact the clubs and try to book it. So I did, I did the legwork and I called every club they were playing at and said, look, we're from America. We'd like to open for them and we'll bring ourselves over. So they're like, great. Let's do that. So then the satellites, something goes wrong and they cancel the tour. But you know, we pretty much already bought plane tickets and like, well, we're going anyway. And so we kept the dates. And there was a Georgia Satellites group I belonged to, and a guy named Phil Lay was in there. And he was like, hey, I know you're coming over. If you need some equipment, you can use my equipment, and you can come and stay at our house. We're not going to be there. We're going to be in France, but mm-hmm. here's what he is. And the dude no, doesn't know right. from Adam. I had never met him. And he gave me pretty much uh, an old orange amplifier to tour with and mm-hmm. a bass. Amp. We used his home in Bristol as a home base. And just the amount of trust he gave us was just uh, Phil and his wife, Lindy, are just they've become some of our best friends. Yeah. They've come over here to our house and we go to their house. And it, it's unbelievable how sweet they are. Mm-hmm. So with Phil helping out with that first tour we did in England, you know, when he reached out to you and you guys connected, it, it was just wonderful. So you were putting some dates together for us for 04. Yeah. And now we've kind of latched on with this guy. Uh, he's a he runs a talent. Well, he works for a talent agency in L.A., which I can't name yet. No, you're going to book us uh, in some pretty big places, and so mm-hmm. it looks like Europe of 24 is going to be a pretty exciting thing. Yeah, no, that's incredible. With because I know we had a kind of talk uh, before this about you know the trepidation of you know you've been independent, you've worked with people at like a grassroots level to get this next step is an incredible thing. And I think 
you know, there is sometimes trepidation when you want to move to that level, but you don't want to distance yourself from the kind of grassroots connections that you've built. And it can be a worrying thing for an artist, but you know, it's such a fucking phenomenal opportunity for you guys. It is, but now there was a lot of guilt that came with it because, uh, you know, I'm 58 and every step I've taken musically has been grassroots stuff. And it's people like you who've helped me out in road country. And it, there's just a giant list of people and, and promoters who mm-hmm. maybe couldn't pay you a lot of money at, at their events, but they were quality events and they were sweet people. And I've known them for years now. And I've got a handful of people where if they ask me to come play somewhere, I don't even ask what it pays. It doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go because I love this person. And just to be mired in that environment for your whole musical career, and then all of a sudden this gets dangled in front of you and it's next level, it's hard to take that step. And I yeah. still wonder if it's the right thing to do, but but I'm going to do it, though. Yeah, you, I feel like it would be a disservice to you and your music to not see where that road goes because, you know, what obviously being a musician, you want to do it to meet people, connect, but you do want to play those bigger shows. You do want to reach those wider peoples. And if someone's there kind of saying this road might get you through that, you'd be, you know, naive to not at least see where it goes for a while. Yeah. I I like, like this agency, I gave them a list of dates this summer that I have open and I'll look back at a spreadsheet here about two days ago and they filled like 16 straight (laughs) days all across the United States. Mm -hmm. And they are in venues that I couldn't get in on my own. Several of them on my own. And they're like, no, we're not interested. All of a sudden they are interested now. And uh, you're, you I can't do that on my own. So I kind of have to do this and and I'm happy about it, but I still feel a little bit of guilt. Yeah. I think, it is a weird one because as a musician in the UK, there are doors that do not open to me as a musician. When I'm asking to play places, it's just, you know, pass. It is what it is because you don't know those people. And I found from the booker side of things, those doors are slowly starting to open more. And it's always, you know, it's disheartening in a way because it is who you know to a it point. Is. But, you know, that's the nature of the beast. And you have to be able to work smart to position yourself to where you do get to know those people in a genuine way because it is an industry it is a business and you know you want to be profitable to some people which sounds gross it's probably like a grassroots level and stuff and it does kind of give you mixed feelings but it is the way to reach more people really it's you know it is what it is and i'm sure you and i either one got in this business as a business, we're, no. we're musicians and that's what we do. And, and that's where our, our heart is. But at some point you got to realize it is a business. Mm. And in order to continue to be able to put your art out, you got to do some business stuff. And, and I hate it. I, I like, I feel guilty when I sell people a t-shirt, yeah. I just want to get a t-shirt because I don't want to take their money. Yeah. You can't be that way. And you have to let business and people aren't, they want to buy your stuff. You know, they want to support you. And it's just, it's weird to get used to that. But then when you talk about booking shows and now, you know, this guy was telling me I need to get my flying rider together. And I said, what's a flying rider? It's like, well, when you fly into gigs and you have, you need someone who's going to come and pick you up at the airport and you got to have your back line lined out and you have to have all this and that, you know, that stuff way over my head. Yeah. I'd consider that stuff goes on. So now it's a whole new learning curve for me to yeah. figure this out. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And, I'm really, you know, no matter what happens, I'm just excited that, you know, 2024, you come over to the UK because, you know, I really can't wait to see you guys live because from everything I've seen and everything I've heard, it is just, 
a fucking killer live show and i really can't wait for you guys to come over well mike thank you you're so nice to say that and, and we can't we can't wait to come over there because when we played england a long time ago the, the music fans there are just so phenomenal mm-hmm. and and what you do with road country is just so awesome man and oh, you're thank you you're filling a void that needs to be filled and and let's hope you continue to rise and everything continues to go up for you too if i can i'll drag you up with me oh that would be that would be awesome when so when was the last time you played like the uk in europe I was afraid you were just going to ask me that. Is <laughs> Teresa, 03 or 04? Last time? Yeah. It, it was somewhere. I went over once just with Night Train, and I'm mm-hmm. going to guess that was 04. And then we went back again with a guy named Rob McNerlin, who I was mm-hmm. playing with. And we played with Rob and Luna. And we that was probably 05, maybe, somewhere in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we were playing little places. But, I, I mean, I, I was there enough. One, one thing that struck me about England was, you know, we talk about how big America is. Well, it seemed like in England, you know, one day's drive, you can be from one end to the other. Yeah. And I, we, uh, we really had a great time up in Newcastle. We played up there and that was just wonderful. You know, we played London, played Bristol. We, we bounced around quite a bit around the country and it was just great. We were just playing little pubs. People were really into it. Mm-hmm. Um, Trying to think of some of the, I can't remember the other places we played, but it's been a little while. And I haven't been off the, uh, you know, outside the UK. So I'm really excited to get over on the mainland and see what's going on. Oh, awesome. That is one of the good things about the UK is I think you can pretty much do the entire from like the south to the tip of Scotland in less than a day. If you just hammer, I remember I drove from mine, which is the north of England to Aberdeen, which is quite high up in Scotland. It took maybe six hours, which. Yeah. <laughs> Is that which which M is that M one or M four? What goes up? Um, I have no idea. It might be the M four, but I just follow the sat nav now. Like that's the thing. I'd have hate to have tried to do this thing without Google Maps. Man, I think uh, we, <laughs> you know, we did it, and we rented a van when we landed it in Heathrow, and they just threw me the keys. Like you know, had this van back in twenty four days. <laughs> you know, I never driven in England. I didn't know where I was going. It it took a little while to get used to all that, and we were really doing it all by the seat of our pants. But mm. by the time it was over with, we we had quite the experience. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, we'll wrap this up, but I'm just so like, but but do we ugh, before we do go talking about kind of putting your music on Spotify because Go West is on Spotify and streaming services now. What was the apprehension behind putting it on digital was it just the obviously spotify doesn't pay anyone anything and stuff was it that kind of issue that you had with streaming services yeah initially that's the problem because uh, i'm thinking you know it's just kind of logic why would i give away yeah what people are paying for and, and i was really and it kind of fits with the whole way back image too that you know if you want to buy it i'm selling out yeah. the truck car and, and that's the only way you're going to get it but then as I got a website and people from across the country, I got on XM radio a little bit and people were ordering from across the country and that's fine. And I remember when I was putting out Kingsport, Tyler's manager said, are you going to put this up digital? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, you know, if you just want to turn down a revenue stream, that's up to you. And that, that phrase really resonated with me, but what really made it all okay with me is Spotify to me. I think about it as radio. Now that's yeah. all Spotify is. It's a way to get your music out for other people to hear it. And people who are really fans who want to support you will contact you and purchase your, your music. And, and that seems to be happening. Yeah. But the connections I've made and, and just uh, across Europe right now, uh, Australia doesn't happen without Spotify. 
No. And it's a necessary evil. And uh, I haven't been online long enough to see how sales are like on because Apple reports out really slowly. But I, I guess I've moved quite a few units on on iTunes. I don't, mm. you know, I don't. But it, it's a weird step for me. But it it's, certainly seems to have paid off. Yeah. No, totally. That's I think that's the right kind of outlets look at it's a revenue stream in the vegas sense because it's 0.002 cents or whatever it is but it is promotion it is i view it purely as marketing promotion to be like you can listen to it here but if you want to actually support the thing you need to go here and i do it myself as a music fan i listen to an album first on spotify and then i go and buy it on record or you know buy the tickets to the shows and stuff and i think a lot of people do that and i think there is a hill to die on when it comes to Spotify and streaming services, but to throw the baby out with the bathwater is a big step. Yeah. And before I just didn't want to cross that line. And some other people talked to me and said, you know, if you look at the amount of reach and how many more people, even if a small percentage of those people are true supporters that'll buy your stuff, you're still coming out because yeah. you're reaching people you would have never gotten to before. And that really seems to be the case. You know, and you see when people start saying, well, you're getting paid 0.0007 per play, and that turns you off pretty quick. But if I just think about it like terrestrial radio used to be, and it's just a way to get your music heard, yeah. you know, I can go to bed at night now and, and sleep with what I've done. So mm-hmm. that, that's awesome. where Cool. Well, Go West is on streaming services now. You're coming over to the UK and Europe for 2024. Do you have any tour dates in America that you've got coming up imminently? This is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. You know, the ones I have are mostly the, those are unconfirmed dates. So I really mm-hmm. can't talk yeah. about the ones that, that my agency's put together. And, and I don't have anything. A lot of the stuff's just still locally. I'm going to Fort Wayne, Indiana. If you go to the website, uh, cool. you can see where I'm going to be. And I'm still probably within, a, I know I'm going way over in Virginia come summer. So there's still chances to catch me here locally. And what I'm seeing too, just more and more people are, are driving up from Atlanta or wherever to come and see the show. And it's great. So come and see us while you can. That's what, that's what I'll say to you. Yeah. That's awesome, man. You definitely fucking deserve it. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm sure. have it folks that's episode 63 of the rogue country podcast done and dusted thank you so much for listening and make sure you check out john r miller and jp harris on tour in march mike and the moon pies on tour in the beginning of april and make sure you do not fucking miss luke hendrickson when he hits these shores at the end of april all information is available on the rogue country page and until next time keep supporting the things you love and keep doing the things you love peace